Hi everyone, thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fancy Animation Podcast. These episodes are being recorded remotely at the moment for obvious reasons, so do forgive the occasional pop, crackle and um, another breakfast cereal you can think of. Um, our pop filters, our better mics are stuck in an office in London, so we will get them as soon as we can, but bear with us in the meantime. Uh, if you'd like to support the show and you value it as an educational research, a couple of things we'd ask you to do. Could you share it online via Twitter, Facebook or any other means at your disposal? Um, you can follow us on um, those platforms at FanAnimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. Um, give us a like, give us a review. It helps boost our visibility um, and we just want to grow our audience. So please help us out with that. Um, if you're really feeling flush for cash, you can buy our book, which is now on paperback, Fantasy Animation, Connections Between Media, Mediums and Genres. Um, it's around the 30 to £35 mark, so it's probably a little bit pricey for those who want it for personal use. But if you're feeling um, devil may care, or if you um, have library purchasing um, privileges in the institution that you might work for, then please do consider ordering a copy. Otherwise, please do sit back and enjoy the show. And welcome back to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I am enthusiastically and as always Alex Sargent. I am equally as enthusiastically Chris Holiday. I'm a little bit sleep deprived, so this is going to be a weird episode. Um, and it's going to be a particularly weird episode because we're here to talk about Beetlejuice, a film that you kind of chose for your feel-good fantasy animation. It certainly, I think, it got to the final, um, but we decided to do anyway because uh, one, why not? And two, we have a very special guest um, to talk about it. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, Jing An Young, um, playwriter, screenwriter, and um, academic. Uh, recently finished your PhD, is that right? I did, yes, June 1st. Dr. Young, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for coming on the show. Um, Jing An, what's, why Beetlejuice? Why did we, you want to talk about it so much? I think because, um, number one, I hadn't seen it in a long time until it appeared on your uh, Feel Good quiz, which I painstakingly tried to get, <laughs> get it to win, <laughs> just like every day checking your quiz, which, by the way, are fantastic. And everyone should check out your Instagram quizzes, which I am a huge aficionado for. But basically, um, I grew up with it. I think I was a preteen. I must have been like 12 or 13. I had a VHS copy of it. And it really sort of cemented my sort of love for kind of this genre, which kind of Burton is known for, but also very much my field, which is like B cinema, uh, Hammer films, you know, of kind of the 1960s of just kind of satire and horror combined with this sort of, I guess, commentary on family values and American consumer culture and all this stuff. And this film kind of encapsulates that. And I think it kind of is one of Burton's best. So that's kind of why. <laughs> why this film well i'm um i suppose i'm coming to it from uh with my fa with my um i didn't say fantasy then with my fantasy hat on which is not, i i don't mean that i mean my animation hat on um obviously burton is a figure who crops up and we've obviously done corpse bride and and um charlie and the chocolate factory and so we've done a couple of burton films uh this is obviously going back into into burton past and perhaps 
um, we can tease out uh, the film's place in relationship to both exactly the films that, that Jing and mentioned, those sorts of like um, 50s and 60s, B that sort of B-movie aesthetic that Burton would then go on to to sort of solidify with uh, with Mars Attacks in the, in the mid-90s. Um, obviously, this film is, is renowned for... Um, it's, well, it's interesting because it is both renowned and not renowned for its visual effects. So it's obviously this accumulation of stop motion, um, prosthetics, makeup, um, and then blue screen. But then equally, I did a little bit of research and it doesn't really appear in, in much um, or in many VX, uh, VFX histories. It's, it seems to be sort of subsumed from what I can find, subsumed by Burton's status as uh, an auteur. And I wonder whether it's just because like, like him, the film is quite difficult. Uh, and, and sort of hard to describe it as is one thing. I've heard it described as a ghost comedy. It's interesting that, that obviously you use the, the word satire and its relationship to, to sort of consumerism. Uh, so a bit of ghost comedy, a bit of um, uh, surrealism. It obviously uses animation. Uh, Alex, for you, fantasy. Um, you, if I remember rightly, you've seen the film before. This was, a, as have I, but this was a return. This was, this was a return to, um, to, to Beetlejuice. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was a film that I'd seen a couple of times. I never really had any childhood engagement with it. It just passed me by. Although I do remember the animated TV series popping up now and then. So, you know, a nice link there. Um, but to me, it was a sort of first proper attempt to get to grips with the thing. Because as you say, um, it can, I think, be tonally very um, abrasive because it's just sort of all over the place and seems to sort of switch movies every 15 minutes. And part of its anarchy is its sort of, I don't know, tonal shift. So I, I've found it a movie in the past watching, that I didn't really get, but I'm, I'm glad that um, you mentioned satire, Jing-An, because I think that's my way into this movie this time was that I felt it actually was quite a biting satire on lots of things. In, yeah. American family values, um, sort of American national myths, identity, um, white suburbia. And, you know, the, the cliche about Burton is that he's sort of there for the outsider. But I actually found, you know, I find quite that often that's quite a sort of cosy um, way of doing it in a lot of Burton's films. But this one I found actually had some teeth and bites and, and nastiness behind it in a, in a good way. And, and I found myself clicking into it this time. So I'm, I'm, I'm cool. Let's talk about it. <laughs> um, so actually, to kick us off, I mean, I've got a couple of things I wanted to say about the opening sequence, but but actually, personally, I, I'd um, I think for for listeners who are perhaps unfamiliar with with uh, your uh, working, and obviously you, this isn't necessarily an area. I mean, let's 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 talk about fantasy animation. This this isn't an area, and when we were speaking to you about the podcast, this. Um, the relationship between fantasy and animation isn't something that's perhaps directly uh, related to your research interests um, or that your research kind of specialisms, but seemingly there is a connection to be made between um, the period and the era in which you pr primarily work, so the sort of 60s, if I if I remember rightly, uh, and, and Tim Burton. So I just wondered if, if um, you could give a sort of uh, outline of, of what you sort of tend to research and, and whether that sort of informs what, what a film at first glance that seems to be sort of quite distant from where you sort of um, primarily pitch your academic tent. Yeah, so I guess um, the, the films I look at, which are sort of late 50s and then kind of going into the mid-1960s, kind of right before we hit Swing 60s. And actually, it's quite a shame because before the lockdown, I was going to be with you guys on stage you at are. the Cinema Museum. 
to talk about uh, Yellow Submarine, which is a movie I finally finished watching because <laughs> it's it gets very, but all the kind of, you know, the psychedelia and all the kind of politics are there about, you know, conservative culture and things like that. But back to your question about fantasy animation, a lot of the films from the 50s, as you both know, kind of all used artificial sets. And that's the idea of uh, creating uh, realism, but very much through kind of a lens of sort of, uh, you know, unrealistic, right? You know, kind of, for example, there's a film called Miracle in Soho, and it's uh, it was written and produced by Emmerich Pressburger, who had just broken away from his partnership with Michael Powell. Uh, they had some kind of disagreement. Michael Powell went off and made Peeping Tom, which is an amazing film, yep. and uh, which also kind of, I think, uses kind of fantasy uh, to some extent with the idea of like cinema and or tourism and things like that. But uh, Miracle in Soho was a film that he decided to follow up his break from Powell with. And it very much reconstructs Soho, which is kind of my research about London Soho. It recreated Soho on a Pinewood set. And it was painstakingly sort of built. I mean, it costs like, you know, huge amount of money for that period of time. But it's like that idea of like creating realism, but through, you know, an artificial mode. So I guess that kind of feeds into Burton's kind of oeuvre, right? Where it's sort of like... I don't know. It's sort of that you, you mentioned like suburbia, but like suburbia in itself is like constructed realism, you know, because it's all about, uh, I don't know, help me out. It's sort of like being, I don't know, subsumed by, you know, kind of this neoliberalistic fantasy world utopian where everybody's free and equal, so-called. But there's like this very clear hierarchy between rich and poor and uh, television reigns free so I guess that that idea as well television culture which I think Tim Burton very much looks at in like Ed Wood uh, in that film like the idea of you know the the commercialization of everything and how that I guess how that interacts with creativity or artistry and I think with Beetlejuice it's very much and also with Nightmare Before Christmas and I think I read something about how distinct those two films are together when you watch Beetlejuice and Nightmare together they both have these trickster protagonists. You have Beetlejuice and you have Jack Sparrow. I'm not Jack Sparrow, Jack uh, Jack Skellington, sorry. It was like, oh, oh Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, but like, you know, those two characters, they're very much about kind of questioning their environment, but also being able to kind of manipulate that and kind of disrupt this, again, back to this kind of idea of consumer society, consumer-led society. Uh yeah, yeah. No, well, uh, the the issue of kind of suburbia, I think the um, uh, the, the suburbia itself is is kind of a construction and and this mm -hmm. idea of sets. And we we looked previously, I think, in previous podcasts at at stuff like Mary Poppins and its reconstruction of a particular kind of London uh, imaginary. One of the notes I've got written down um, uh, about. Uh, Beetlejuice is is an idea of a kind of rhetorical rhetorical front. Um, and I and I wonder and, I, and as I was as I was watching the film, I was thinking about uh, this idea of uh, what is presented and what is behind, and and uh, I wondered again whether that tapped into and we'll get onto this sort of broader questions that that certainly Burton is is known for or uh, ideas that he's renowned for around identity and authority, uh, isolation, being disconnected, um, all these sorts of uh, questions. I think are, are can be tied back to this idea of a, a rhetorical front and and something that's but that's behind. Um, mm -hmm. And it, I it's, I think for me it's established the tone of the film is is established from these opening shots. This, the first shot um, where you think it's an establishing shot of um, the Maitland's house and it turns out to be a model. It turns out to just be a model that um, mm -hmm. Alec Baldwin, I should also add a young Alec Baldwin. I didn't yes, know such a thing existed. It's like a young Morgan Freeman. They don't exist. But apparently a young uh, Alec Baldwin exists and is there. Um, very handsome as well. 
Yeah. <laughs> and his uh, his character is um uh a sort of a model maker and he's making a model of the local village and immediately that sort of um you think it's a, a an establishing shot you think it's live action or, or and then you you pull back and you see a giant hand come in and you then you think it's uh, or you realize that it's a a model it's a it's a set that immediately establishes a kind of um immediately establishes a kind of playfulness and it reminded me of the opening to sort of Frank and Weenie that you begin mm. in, a, in a sort of B-movie pastiche and then you sort of come out again and um, uh, it, it's the, the real diegetic world of the film. So all of these sorts mm. of plays with um, r- rhetorical fronts and what's really behind um, I think ties into broader themes that Burton is interested in in terms of life and death and reanimation and um, the undead and outside of them but also that it that it it's exactly right. He's interested in facades, or it seems to be that he's interested in facades. And you have the the facade of uh, the film itself matched by this sort of picture perfect um, postcard image of suburbia that is then slowly sort of deconstructed. Um, I, also, um, these idea of sort of artificial spaces, artificial sets, um, is sort of writ large in the history of fantasy cinema because you know right back to you know something in the um, Hollywood context, something like. Um, the Wizard of Oz, or indeed, if you go to the British context, something like um, uh, the Pressburger film that's name has escaped my head. Uh, Red Shoes. Red Shoes, or indeed, um, you know, the, the sort of Wizard of Oz in reverse movie in heaven, um, one of their most famous, and it's completely slipped my mind. Matter of Life and Death. Matter of Life and Death, exactly. These movies rely on the beauty of um, very obviously fake beautifully constructed sets to articulate visions of alternative spaces and alternative worlds that do not exist. Um, And part of the pleasure in those movies is sort of admiring the immaculate design of set. And it's almost like with, with Beetlejuice, quite a lot of what's going on is, is almost a, um, a a resubmersion of that. In fact, there's a lot in this film about taking rhetorics and flipping them on their head in terms of fantasy, because the movie um, you know, sort of does that, but what it does is it makes suburbia and makes, you know, white wasp America seem strange through its set design. Um, and that plays into the narrative because the narrative is essentially um, taking what is quite a well-worn trope, which is the sort of haunted house movie um, a or the or haunted house story, something that goes right back to sort of the history of popular literature in the US um, and flipping it on its head by putting us on the side of the ghosts rather than on the sides of the family. So, yeah, there's loads going on, even in those opening few moments. I think the um, you're right, that sort of narrative switch that the film... The, the move that it makes by having the film take place in the perspective of the ghosts is something that I think in a, in a nor- normal, in, in lots of ghost stories, whether, you know, uh, Turn of the Screw, it's it's um, uh, fil- loose film adaptation, the others, it's something that will be positioned as a reveal. What I liked about the film itself is that it immediately, it sort of, it, it, it makes that narrative move about five, ten minutes in. And actually what happens is then the rest of the film becomes... So if the film sets up the the, the uh, husband and wife uh, team of Alec Baldwin and, and Gina Davis as the Maitlands, um, they are killed early on. So I should have said spoiler alert before that, but we're, I've done it now. Um, so they are, they are killed. They drown right at the start of the movie after about 10 minutes. Um, and then essentially the rest of the film is them trying to negotiate and actually negotiate mm-hmm. the bureaucracy and the red tape of what it means to be 
kind of dead and uh, or undead or ghost-like um and it plays with ideas of perception so going back to this idea of, of kind of a rhetorical front the idea that you the, go the ghosts are there but you can't see them um but then some characters can see them and then all you need to do is draw a a door on the wall and it becomes and, and chant the name of something and then you can and knock on the door and then you walk through and it becomes uh, another world a kind of portal quest fantasy if i if i know my my dr sergeants um a portal quest fantasy uh and then suddenly the characters are stepping into a, another world and then you have all of that sort of office space uh or as i said the red tape the 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 way in which the undead is bit or the 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 uh, this kind of limbo state is presented um, through quite, uh, yeah, as you say, a sort of bite. I like the idea that it's got a bite to it. That the film certainly has a, a bite to it. But the, I, I do, I, I do think that the film is very interested in that sort of front and back and, and things that you present and the artificially. He's very Burton seems very interested in is part of his discourse on identity and and um, agency and. Uh, movement certainly the film is about moving over and across thresholds uh but as i said i quite like the idea that the the something that might be a reveal in a ghost story uh 45 minutes an hour in is something that's immediately handled after the first five ten minutes and then the rest of the film just becomes a sort of um a playful as you say a playful satire that seems to put in a lot of quintessential typical burton tropes uh, along the way I love I just love that scene when they when they enter the so-called afterlife or I suppose it'd be hell's waiting room and they meet their caseworker who's played by the incredible Sylvia Sidney and she's like this you know chain smoking old lady who's got yeah. you know her head cut off and the, you know that's how she died and she's lecturing them on how they haven't uh, relied upon the handbook the handbook for the deceased Sorry, deceased. Yes, <laughs> there's also a joke in there where he says Alec Baldwin reads it. He goes, "The handbook for the deceased." No, the handbook for the deceased. <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's so clever. And like that kind of thing for me, that winking, that self-reflection, that thing we were talking about rhetoric and that kind of very much, you know, non non wig wink, that uh, <laughs> dramatic irony is something that I really miss from Tim Burton films of today. Um, I, I just, Willy, the Willy Wonka films he did, which is, oh my God, they're just so appalling. I just, you know, there's something very, uh, it's almost like the artifice is sort of almost, too much. Sorry to digress. I just hate those films so much. Both of them. Um, not Willy, Willy Wonka and Alice in Wonderland, those two films. Sorry. I just get them mixed up because they're so similar. Yeah. I think. I don't know. There's something about that. But anyway, yeah, Hell's Waiting Room is just it's just fantastic. It looks like an IRS office or a you know council bureau, you know bureaucratic yeah. you know, civil servant place, and it's just yeah, it's well, brilliant. Well, I do think that you can split. Uh, jumping off what you said there, you can sort of split. Uh, well, can you though? Like, I was thinking about Burton's career, and certainly when I was watching the film, it felt very much like a Burton film of the late '80s and early '90s, up until probably something like Mars Attacks. Mm -hmm. Or actually, no, probably a bit later, up until something like Sleepy Hollow. Mm -hmm. um, and then the big shift, uh, the, the the big sort of shift, I think, is something like Big Fish in 2003. Um, but I think, I don't know, there, there's something, I mean, I am interested in Tim Burton. Obviously, we've talked in previous episodes of the podcast, his relationship to animation more broadly. Um, one of the ways that he's considered and framed is this unruly animator, um, largely because of three reasons. The first is this sort of shared understanding of his transgressive behaviour, um, that he is a figure himself, has a sort of simmering strangeness, I think, that seems to persistently underwrite 
um, his uh, star persona. Uh, the second element, I think, is this uh, self-management or this image of his offbeat kind of peculiarity. Uh, the fact he's, he's eccentric, his wild hair, etc. Um, and then the third thing, I think, is this industrial relationship that he has historically with the Disney studio, that he wasn't quite, um, he didn't quite fit well with um with Disney uh, in the 80s and, and previously um, he kind of considered his role very famously as that of a zombie factory worker um, and so he, he sort of he's always been a figure who hasn't quite hasn't quite fit and and so certainly I think his his relationship or certainly I could see his um, some of the sort of preoccupations with um, uh, as I said identity and authority there's um, a quote that I've got here about Burton as a filmmaker that he is quote entirely invested and this is from uh, a book uh, about Burton by uh, Ronald S. Magliosi and Jenny He uh, the isolation of being disconnected from the world at large and the search for true identity um, which I think it perfectly encapsulates a lot of his movies but perfectly encapsulates I think um, a film like Beetlejuice which if I'm right sort of comes in the late 1980s in and around this sort of sojourn into into Batman territory, which obviously, as we know, superheroes are themselves connected to, to identity politics. So, um, yeah, I could certainly pull out a lot of typical quintessential Burton Burton threads. Um, and as you say, that that uh, IRS uh, hell's office that he's that they sort of step into um, immediately sets up a relationship. These are characters that are caught between life and death. Um, their status as ghosts, their three dimensionality—they are—they are liminal figures. No, it's just—it's—it's uh, it's so weird to strike, strike like Tim Burton being described as sort of this kind of oddball because in the eighties and that's kind of my favorite era for bad B films um, <laughs> and good B films as well. The year after this, you have Heather's, and that's you know I'm a huge Winona Ryder fan. That's mm. another reason why I love this film. And Heather's, The Lost Boys. You know, the Witches of Eastwick, which comes a year after this film as well. There's this mm. kind of, and Jack Nicholson plays almost parallel character to Michael Keaton's Beetlejuice. And this idea of gen genre conventions being broken down, but also the kind of inclusion of really big, bloated archetypes. And for me, what's really weird about, you know, kind of thinking of Tim Burton as being an outsider, for me, it's almost like intrinsically part of the way I view the world, which is really weird, right? So maybe it's very much about kind of, I don't know. It's sort of it's really strange to think of 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 that as being. But of course, he was. You know, obviously, he has this history of being this breakaway artist and stuff. But I don't know. There's something really weird about it. Like thinking about the films from that period, which were very much about. You know, even Interview with a Vampire is is kind of really. I just I just watched that for the first time last week, and it really does take so much liberty, and it trusts the audience to kind of go with it. And um, but again, very much like combining, you know, melodrama with a cult, with, you know, horror, with kind of this, you know, uh, homoeroticism, you know, all these things in that film. So I don't know. It's sort of he's sort of like a product of the 80s, if that makes sense. Yeah, it feels like to me, which, again, is looking back to those kind of 60s um, and 70s sort of all kind of drug fueled films. I mean, it's a bit like the. Gallo movies or you know Dario Argento yeah. kind of taking that I don't know it's weird it, it's also it's also the beginning of the sort of um rise of the geek in mm. sort of you know American mainstream filmmaking so it's it's the moment where you know the movies of the 60s that are being almost sort of remade are be and 50s as well mm. have a generation of people who are now becoming the creators and those people are becoming more and more the mainstream voice you know I think that's mm one of the things about watching early Burton movies now is that um, 
is that he's such a sort of um, a figure that's become almost synonymous with mainstream corporate franchise mm. American safe filmmaking that it's very difficult to think of anything anarchic or punky or or you know um, yeah subversive in his movies mm. because really what what's left of all that is you know spiky sti- uh, spiky um, designs and mm. curls on things is sort of the only thing that's left of any of that sort of signature I think so it's also the all these movies you're mentioning as well as sort of you know high fantasy movies of this era mm. um, and yeah sci weird sci-fis are all this sort of um, attempt to, to mainstreamize a particular kind of movie that's always been there but has always been considered by the mainstream as outsider but 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 I know lot. But you know, in twenty twenty twenty, there's nothing more mainstream than a movie um, about sort of you know punk, you know uh, something like of Burton's stock. I think so. It's it's mm-hmm. an odd, it's an odd process of rewatching his early movies because you have to sort of almost let go of what's happened since, um, and that can lead to quite some fun stuff. But I think it's also very easy to make some lazy assumptions. I was going to ask you, Chris, is that one of the things I a lot of I know journalistic press has dealt with on Burton is this idea of like almost as he's had access to more and more CGI, the temptation is to read his movies as less and less innovative. And there's definitely mm. something about the sort of crunky, slightly practical um, thrust of this film that feels more in line with the tone, but I, it's probably something we should complicate. Yeah. Um, did you have any thought about the place of animation sort of in this movie compared to say something like Alice in Wonderland that, that Jing Yan mentioned? Yeah, yeah, I mean, one of the um, obviously one of the biggest uh, separations of this period, uh, which again I think ties fantasy to animation, is practical effects, and and uh, we'll talk a little bit about Harry Hausen because we're actually recording this on Harry Hausen's. Uh, 100th birthday that would have been um but i've got a note about harry Hausen because i think some of the effects are very harry esque in lots and lots of ways um uh, as i mentioned at the beginning there is a sort of clumsy clumsy quality in the stop motion perhaps the prosthetics the makeup the the, the various practical effects um and then in addition to the to the uh, blue screen um that i think and i wondered whether that obviously that clumsy quality i think is obviously intended to connect the film up to to B movies, exactly that sort of um, that, that that genre that you're that you're referring to, Jing, and these sorts of clunky B movies. Um, I mean, at the same time, the film won Beetlejuice won the um, Academy Award for Best Makeup and was BAFTA nominated for Best Visual Effects. Um, and Burton himself has described Beetlejuice as uh, quote his first full blown special effects film. Um, but as I said, it's, it doesn't really appear in VFX VFX histories. Um, and yet, if looking at the film with that hat on, I, I don't think I, when I first watched the film about 10, 15 years ago, I, I, I didn't have that that hat on. And now, now I do looking at it. There are some really innovative um, there are some really innovative moments. Often you get characters that are surrogate animators you know lots of burton's more recent stuff uh corpse bride obviously we, we've uh talked about um frank and weenie they have characters in them that are themselves animators um and burton has always certainly been synonymous with his unruliness has been well matched his un- his unruly eccentricity has as a person as a filmmaker as somebody who doesn't quite fit has been well suited to uh, stop motion animation and 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 certain kinds of animation that that are themselves considered unruly. And again, we've talked in, in many times about um, unruliness is a kind of function of stop motion production. It has a, a jerkiness to it. It has a kind of almost a physical strobing to it um, that doesn't seem to quite 
that doesn't seem to quite work with the smoothness of computer graphics. And I wonder whether that's part of the problem with these more contemporary stuff, these these really bizarre. So Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But yeah, Alice in Wonderland certainly certainly jumps out um, that that characteristic jerkiness that is one of stop motion signifiers that is a way into thinking about Burton's unruliness with all these sorts of staccato movements. It's because stop motion becomes a pleasurable, unruly manifestation of his invisible labor. You know, he very famously um, draws out his own concept art. He's very, you know, and I wonder whether the, the Burton stamp does get diluted or lost a little bit um, because of the smoothness of these contemporary digital images, the smoothness of this computer animation in his more recent, in his more recent films um, that, yeah, that rely a lot. I remember a lot of the pre-release stuff around Alice in Wonderland in particular was all the blue screen stuff, all the green screen stuff that made Tweedledum and Tweedledee these massive figures and with big heads and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I think there's something, um, Burton's re historical relationship to stop motion is perhaps a little bit detached um, and almost the creativity of the digital has sort of actually constrained him a little bit um, and because it, re it relies on, on the smoothness of digital images, whereas I think there is something to be said about the unruliness of stop motion as perfectly suited to his kind of um, the stories that he tells and, and so forth. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, that's I, it's so cool, like um, hearing both of you like talk about animation and fantasy sort of as this really just such a rich subject, like layered, because when you're just kind of watching as a spectator, you just kind of, you kind of take it for granted. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I totally agree. I think um, maybe that stop motion, like I'm just thinking Nightmare Before Christmas, there's so much of that, as you say, staccato movement, which goes with that kind of sense of humor and play about, you know, being obsessed with Christmas and um, yeah. yeah there is I, I mean, I've got a question about, um kind of surrogacy I, I i'm sort of i have a couple of question marks around the character of, of lydia we we mentioned briefly winona Ryder, um and who says things like my whole life is a dark room i myself am uh, a strange and unusual so i've just put surrogate burton question mark but i think there are bigger questions mm. about about how serious you know the film does it's it's a you know comedy in lots of ways and it's a satire but it's dealing with some i don't know quite serious subjects it's quite a serious um and especially i think embodied in the character of, of lydia who's been read as this sort of um depressed teen and so i wondered if there was if there's anything to sort of say about um kind of her as a as a character because she's i don't know she's an interesting um potential surrogate burton here yeah i mean she holds a she holds a camera the first time we see her she's framed holding a polaroid camera um, right at the, I think she, I think she actually points it at the lens almost, or if she's slightly off frame yeah. when she's, when they move into the house and it's immediately you, you're introduced to the, the artist, yeah. right? So yeah, I would, I would, yeah, right. The artist. And she does sort of do that when she introduces herself to uh, the Maitlands the first time when they're wearing sheets mm -hmm. and they're pretending to be ghouls. And she says, you know, oh, I'm, what does she say? She's, you know, I think that's exactly what she says. She says something like, oh, you know, I'm this tortured person and I'm strange and, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I think I think there are variations of surrogate Burtons. I think even Beetlejuice might be a part surrogate Burton. Um, I read somewhere that Michael Keaton improvised on the set. I think so there is that mm. kind of idea that you know, with with Burton himself. So maybe there is an idea of sort of the, the various facets of his personality. You know, the kind of the trickster, the um, the melancholy teenager the artist mm. the tortured artist and then also in the Maitlands the very conservative very conventional couple of just wanting to live out the American dream and be left in peace yeah 
So is that what the, is that what's being critiqued here? Um, we should be more like Beetlejuice and less like, you know, Middle America. What's the mm. what's the what's being what's the subject here? Because you mentioned the kind of consumerism, and, and I think that the um, uh, uh, Catherine O'Hara's character, she's a art, an artist. Is she a sculptress? I think she's a sculptress. Sculptress. Um, so yeah, what's the what? Who's the target then? Because I, I'm I am interested in in. There's a lot going on in this mm-hmm. in this movie in in lots of ways, and and so what's the what do we think is the kind of target in this in this movie? Is it is it uh, Alec Baldwin and and Gina Davis as the um, Maitlands, or is it is it the the Dietzes who turn it who turn up and and um, and try to sort of hollow out the life that was previously lived there and and sort of start anew? I think it's that issue of hollowing out that struck me this time. Actually, I think if we, if we had to pick a broad target. You know, I think I think the film is painting in broad brushstrokes, um, but I, I think it's this idea of um, a certain American consumerist mentality, which robs, um, you know, things of their context and things of their past mm. and things of their substance in favor of that which would sell and that which would sort of you know make money. And and you know, there's this whole thing about um, you know they want it, they want the house because they want the aesthetic of this sort of old house, but they don't want the house actually to have memory or to be mm-hmm. old. Um, and there's this, you know, there's there's this whole sort of critique, both positive, there's a sort of critique that's kind of attacking and biting and nasty. And there's a critique that's sort of more mm-hmm. playful about sort of using, um, using cultures and using spaces and using even music out of context and the absurdity mm-hmm. of doing that. And that everything, when it is meaningful, has a history and has a voice and has has a memory. And then I think once you sort of play with that, there are lots of ways of reading that. And I've got to be like having what I, what I didn't expect to think about when I was watching this movie is sort of recent events in terms of sort of, you know, um, dissembling white privilege. And this is a very white privilege movie. It's a very white movie in many respects. Well, in all respects. Um, apart from perhaps the soundtrack but we can talk about that in a bit but um, uh, it's a very white movie on screen Um, but but what it's doing it's sort of you know it it is attacking the idea that or it it is you know it's almost like the ghosts function as a metaphor for the past you know the the past that we forget when we don't acknowledge our own privilege as sort of white you know humans on the planet Um, and it's these characters that come into you know the one family comes into a house doesn't realize it has a past doesn't want it to have a past and refuses to see the past and you can mm. read that as a as a story of american national identity you know you know american isn't a, isn't a, a new country despite how much it says it is and and there are there's layers of reading it about uh, as much about sort of racial identity as anything else but i think it's this idea of of american consumer values and american national identity um, destroying the past and thus sort of almost bludgeoning meaning out of spaces and ideas that really struck me on this watch mm. that I think does mean this thing has yeah teeth. I mean just the kind of the, the the kind of stuff that she fills the house with is this Memphis design mm. that it's uh, the postmodern furniture from the 1980s which were a bunch of um, obviously a quick google showed me they were they were a bunch of Italian designers who sort of um, well they appropriated the name Memphis from the Bob Dylan song stuck inside of Mobile with the Memphis blues again which is you know interesting but that kind of very uh, big graphics big color larger than life furniture i mean every room that she mrs uh, deets puts up you know redesigns is kind of appropriating another 
style, right? Another aesthetic to fill this house. And there's just so much stuff. Um, mm. That's an interesting idea of the idea of reappropriating history or kind of trying to rearticulate it, which is a very American, you know, cliched thing, right? The idea of appropriating something. Yeah. So yeah, I totally... And I was talking about rhetoric earlier. What you're saying there, Jian, that, that it's doing um, sort of aesthetically for the for the, the design, it's doing narratively because the the story of you know of the haunted house, the story of conquest, like pop. You know, I, I'm I'm not the person that invented this idea, but um, people like fantasy historians like Brian Atterbury have talked about this idea of American popular literature, of which fantasy is among it, being based essentially on the on the you know white Anglo-Saxon fantasy of exploration. And that you know the, the the logic of of pretty much all popular narratives is about the excitement in exploring and conquering, whether mm. it be um you know something as on the nose as say sort of James Fenimore Cooper's Last of the Mohican series, or something like Washington Irving, um who wrote Sleepy Hollow, which Bit Burton mm. you know adapts and is sort of much more ghostly. Nathaniel Hawthorne, you know, ghosts are are a um a stories are about co conquering ghosts are about conquering the past. Um, but this is a story about the past conquering the present um, mm. and the ghosts taking over and refusing to be ignored. And and I think, as you're saying, exactly right. It, it really feeds into this critique of American national consciousness that that, that I just hadn't struck me before. There's um, there's something there for to be said, because there's, there's a couple of bits that, that stood out. Actually, the first bit uh, I've already mentioned is is Alec Baldwin's character, Adam Maitland, being this model maker. And he's in, and actually part of the reason that at the start, him and his wife, well, he wants to go into town is to buy some more paints and some more stuff for his models. He's very interested mm -hmm. in appearances. And um, as I said, the first shot of the film looks to be a, an establishing shot, but it's just just a short kind of model. Uh, and there's also another moment where Charles and, and Delia Dietz, so Jeffrey Jones and Catherine O'Hara, I think, are sitting what on facing each other in chairs, and it looks to be indoors, and then the camera pulls away, and then they're just outdoors. And mm -hmm. it's just like a, a white wall behind them. And again, you're suddenly, ah, oh, okay. But there's something about kind of appearances. And, and as you say, Catherine O'Hara's character, Delia, is very, because she's a sculptor, she's very interested in the material, um, kind of material possessions. Um, but actually going back to the idea of narratives of conquest, it made me think that part of the, the kind of jeopardy and the comedy is is what happens when you can't, you you don't have control over your over your own body. Um, and you have, uh, obviously, Beetlejuice is perhaps the extreme. He kind of peaks the anomaly of flexible, plasmatic bodies um, right up until the very, very end, the, the sort of post-credit sequence, if you like, or the, the epilogue, um, where his head is shrunk in the, in the waiting room where he is number, goodness knows how many, 10 million or something. Um, <laughs> but he there's something about being able to master your own body, and that's why I wonder whether that's that's the reason why you know 10 minutes in the characters die and then the rest of the film is okay so they've got to negotiate their own position um caught in limbo between the living and the dead they want to be acknowledged and want to be recognized as human and there's a lot of dialogue between adam and barbara which are like can they see us i think she saw us i think you know that's sort of def desperately want to be sort of um mm. sort of noticed um uh, and which is no, they, they find a nice parallel then in the Dietz family because they also want to be noticed. They want to, as soon as they, well, one, they want to establish and settle in that house, uh, take down the wallpaper and sort it all out. One of the first acts that they do when they when they go in, um, Otho, the character played by Glenn Shaddix, kind of walks around and, and 
if I remember right, he does sort of graffiti on the walls. So they're already they're already trying to sort of destabilize history. Um, and so I think there's a nice parallel between the Maitlands and the Dietzes. They are both interested in in kind of wanting to be wanting to be seen. It's just that one of them one of the couples happens to be dead, and so that plays out within broader Burton-esque themes of, of identity and, and being the outsider and wanting to be wanting to be noticed. Um, uh, and whereas you then you get the, the Dietzes who are just sort of interested in this yeah material image of of um, of the kind of a perfect American life and actually as soon as they see a chance to make money out of the, the when they can see the ghosts they sort to sort of strike up a bargain with the ghosts in order to make make money out of it we'll turn this into the center for, I think that um, Charles says something that will turn this into a center for you know ghostly activity or something like that like he, he immediately is thinking with dollar signs in his eyes. Hi everyone, I'm just going to pause the podcast at this moment. It's just me this week because uh, Chris is busy exercising a ghost from his uh, newly acquired mansion, so um, he couldn't be here. But I just wanted to remind you all that if you are enjoying these podcasts and you'd like to help grow the show, um, the more listeners we get, the more likely we are to be able to keep doing this. So it's always um, useful to have likes, to have retweets, to have shares, um, to have reviews if you download it through um, Apple Podcasts. Um, Otherwise, to subscribe or like or do any kind of thing like that. They all help the algorithms. They all help boost the visibility of the show. Remember, um, on our next episode after this one, we will be uh, taking listener suggestions. Um, It's my hope that we can start having the kind of conversations that we often have online um, on Twitter and stuff as part of the podcast. So what I really want you to do is um, think about what animation and fantasy you've seen in the last few years that you think represents or helps us to deal with the issue of diversity and inclusion. Um, This is a really key theme, obviously, at the moment, um, and Chris and I are going to be thinking about lots of different ways we can make the podcast and blog more um, inclusive, but for now we thought we'd we'd sort of kickstart it by doing a show where we take a fantasy animation that can be talked about in those terms. So, either send us a quick email via the Contact Us tab on the website, tweet us on uh, Twitter at FanAnimResearch, or talk to us on Facebook, Instagram, or Reddit, and crucially tell us why you're picking the film you have. Tell us about who you are, what made you come to that um, particular film or television show or game, um, and we'll read it out on the show. So, get involved in the conversations, um, and we're now going to get back to another conversation that's probably at some point going to mention Harry Belafonte. Spoiler alert. So yeah, I think there's a lot going on in the film that I perhaps hadn't given it given it um, credit for. But um, yeah, interesting. Also, the idea that they're not afraid of death. You know, that they, they want to sell it, they want to monetize it. Um, yeah. You know, if, if ghosts came up to me, I'd be screaming my head off. You know, running out the door. You know, no matter how kind of um, inconspicuous they looked. And I think that idea that the, the 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 contemporary characters who are not afraid of life. I mean, there's a there's a really there's, the line is just so uh, you have to kind of quote it. But Otho says to the in the dinner party scene the famous deo dinner party scene he says to the uh, woman on his right who has you know obviously attempted suicide he tells her people who commit suicide become civil servants in the afterlife mm-hmm. and it's this i know it's sort of like oh you know i mean it's it but it's 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 like this sort of really really weird one-liner that kind of is kind of got this kind of bifurcated meaning right um because it's repeated again in the waiting room with mm. the actual civil servant who has actually slit her wrists, right? She's painted in green and she says, you know, if I knew what I knew now, and then the entire room starts laughing. And it's this idea of like laughing at death, which I think again comes into what you said about, you know, Burton being this kind of 
brooding sort of um you know melancholic you know figure and and but I, I always find that really I never know what to think when when you're kind of being presented with that type of humor because it's sort of like you know can I can I read into it can I not is it funny is it not funny but it, it's it's you know it, it's it's very Burton-esque isn't it mm-hmm. I think that yeah. idea well it's a, certainly I think um obviously Burton as we said is an, is one of those sort of figures and I certainly an ideal candidate to think about these um uh, bodies animated live action they seem to be really interesting sites to think about um resistance and, and change and, and ulterior behavior and and uh yeah and broader kind of questions of um unruliness and, and marginality and yeah. uh, and also the experience of what it's like to be marginal um and so yeah and, and again lots of burton's movies corpse bride is a is a obviously a terrific example because it set, offsets the world up top with the world down below. And again, you have a similar organization of, of sort of fictional spaces. Um, one is, and both of them are, are led by a certain degree of kind of uh, bureaucracy, but certainly what Burton tends to do is is place, what is it, the world of the living is, is in, you know, incredibly mundane. And then the world of the dead is is these really exciting and, and uh, interesting places. So it, it comes as kind of no surprise that I certainly found that the world of the undead, where the characters, the Maitlands, go through the door that they've drawn on the wall and into this, as you said, this IRS office. That is a lot more vibrant and playful and, and colourful and comedic. It's where Beetlejuice sort of resides. That is a lot, there's a lot more kind of animation, quote unquote, going on and energy and vitality than there is in the in the sort of stifled world of the of the living it's also about sort of ideas of of flipping the abject on its head isn't it and that the moment mm-hmm. that you mentioned jingang about um uh about them the, the not laughing that the sort of laughing at death is perhaps the most abject moment in the film in that it's kind of funny it's also absolutely terrifying to an, another degree that these sort of characters mm-hmm. are so consumed with um with making money that, that that they can't even appreciate the horror of death and the horror of mortality um and and that's you know that's interesting because therefore you know normally a ghost is is a figure about that but but the ghost isn't the one that's that's sort of representing the abject figure here it's the human that's representing the abject figure the, the ghost is perfectly comfortable with that idea and is willing to engage with it but but the humans the humans are not and then what you're saying there, Chris, I think that's also interesting in terms of like in terms of how they articulate outsideness. Is the scene where the ghosts um, put on the sheets to try and be seen? Yeah, yeah. So they try and do the haunting, and they put on the classic sheets, and they sort of make the ooh noise. And it's almost like that's a sort of I felt that was a very clever way of sort of um, articulating um, what it means to be an outsider speaking to a sort of hegemonic norm norm because essentially the only way they can be seen the only way they can be heard the only way they can be acknowledged by these people is to adopt a lexicon a vocabulary and iconography that that the mainstream are comfortable with um and that's the way they 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 are allowed entrance into sort of you know into the dialogue that they have to look like they have to look like quote-unquote ghosts Mm. to be seen as ghosts um, even though that's not what ghosts look like in this world, so that's an, it's a very clever way, almost, of articulating something that's to do with identity politics, but through sort of quite a, almost, you know, a, a funny sight gag involving a sheet. Um, and yeah, interesting. 
well, it's all, and also the pleasures of practical effects is the most lo-fi visual effects that one of the most lo-fi visual effects that the film has, and, and some of the effects do stand up really nicely. As I said, there's some some Harryhausen-esque moments where where the Maitlands threaten. I think that they they when they first realise that they are dead because they can't step outside, or when they do step outside um, their own house, they seem to be in this sort of nether world, um, and that's very you know very stop motiony, very Harryhausen and and so forth but yeah i quite like the fact that one of the most lo-fi effects in the film is exactly what you're saying putting on sheets to to look like uh, a sort of broad um uh, also to certainly be culturally accepted as ghosts moments where they kind of rip their head off and their skin and distort their faces are grotesque but not what we think ghosts are and and certainly this this um yeah all you need to do is stick on a sheet is the lowest form of <laughs> the lowest form of wit. No, but it's the lowest form of uh, special effect. And it's the one that ultimately grants them access to the, this world. Um, can we talk about sound now? Sure. Okay. So I, before we came on air, um, Jing and you were singing a little song and I'm not going to get you to sing the song now. Um, but is that, yeah. I mean, what do we make of the film sound? Cause it's cropped up a couple of times. I have a few notes on, on sort of sound in animation, but I just wondered, um, I guess what what the style, what that particular sequence that we were referring to is doing. Um, and obviously, if you want to give us a couple of verses, <laughs> feel free. You should just do a little post post prod mm. instead of a little of the beginning of that. Film. A little, well, we'll do a little interruption, and it'll be that song. But um, yeah, what, what's, what's going kind of going on in that sequence? Because it is a sort of in a film full of, as I said, it's difficult to describe the film as one thing. Um, what what does that that sort of dinner sequence what's its role i think because it is it for me it certainly is a standout moment well i mean obviously it's one of the funniest scenes in the film i think it's a very recognized and beloved scene um i believe tim burton actually wanted to take it out of the film um and everyone convinced him otherwise but i think because of the because of the song because of the belafonte song Deo, the banana boat song. Uh, yeah, it just gives it a kind of, it, it injects it with, again, this whimsical sort of uh, humour, which, again, could possibly endanger the film from becoming too dark, which, again, lifts up the tone of the film, again, from becoming sort of too too gothic, too too much horror. I mean, that's sort of, for me, because it, it's, it's, it comes sort of, I guess, three quarters of the way in to the film um so it's very much sort of um we're, we're kind of i guess overlaying uh, overlaboring the kind of maitland's desire to you know be seen as we were talking about and then it, we kind of are return to the the deeds i don't know it's a it's a great scene but i mean it i could kind of understand kind of burton's hesitation to include it because it does sort of it, it does take us off on a little bit of a different uh pathway really because they do talk about death and they do talk about ghosts and then suddenly they're they're inhabited by the ghosts and then that kind of that's it is it a, um is it before it's before the seance yes isn't it before the so it's a nice sort of i don't know it seemed to rhyme quite nicely you've got this early as you said this this earlier sequence where they're dancing around the table and seem to be sort of you know possessed and, and so forth um and then you have the antithesis of that and actually i found the seance um slash exorcism sequence quite quite grotesque you know it that's one of the that was one of the um the most horrifying sequences in the film a lot of it a lot of the horror is treated with exactly that kind of rhetorical front or that playfulness with facades whereas this one seemed seemed a little bit more um yeah a little bit more grotesque in in lots of ways so it was a nice parallel i think between the two sequences uh, a sort of dance sequence that that celebrates the energy of of 
death through life and then you've got this sort of um the draining and the removing of of life and the characters certainly the, the maitlands begin to sort of shrivel up and yeah mm. awful ghastly scene but a nice parallel between the two i really need you to 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 help me unpack one earth they're doing with the Harry Belafonte music in this movie because I'm, I'm only at the cusp of engaging with what the hell's going on here because to me there's just there's something in because there's there's two Belafonte tracks right mm-hmm. there's there's the Deo Banana Boat song yeah. and Jumping Line at the end and they're both sort of quite iconic moments in the movie and and I, and I don't first of all that's that's obviously I mean other than that it's mm-hmm. quite funny it's a bizarre mm-hmm. pick. To, to, to do to this soundtrack you know you, you know the, 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 there's a lot more sort of um more obvious yet still funny tracks that they could do a silly song and dance to so why on earth have they picked um that you've got the whole history of, of Harry Belafonte you know being a sort of prominent part of of um of you know of of Oh, what's the right word really mm. like it's you know it's it's I said it's a white movie on screen but it's Harry Belafonte's presence here really mm. sort of uh, highlights uh, highlights mm. the lack of diversity on screen, and yet obviously the songs themselves are incredibly problematic in terms of what they're dealing with and what kind of representation of race they're going for, which is then added to by this absurd dance number. Then you've got the shrunken head thing going on at the end. Um, then you've got the fact that there was a sequel planned to this movie called something like Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian <laughs> or something like that. And, and now you've got yourself a dissertation and a PhD project. So off we go, lads. What's what's going on? I Well, I, I don't know whether this is, um, you know, and this is me proverbially passing the buck over the airways. I'm thinking about Belafonte's relationship. You know, he's a, he, what is he, a singer of the 50s and 60s. Um, and in the 50s, he was known as the King of Calypso. And so... I'm, I, I don't know whether there is a connection here to your work on Soho. I'm just trying to pull in some of these interesting threads. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, we could talk a lot about animation's relationship to race. and But certainly, yeah, this, this scene is interesting because it seems to be white, white, very white characters. Um, I don't want to say sort of engaging in a minstrelsy performance, but there is something quite jarring about white performing as black. But I, I don't really have much to white performing as black well yeah white performing as sort of you know yeah afro-caribbean before who who himself is a prominent political activist of of racial causes humanitarian causes yeah performing a song that even even on its own terms is problematic Mm. so yeah (laughs) (laughs) um but there's something going on about the use of that and and again I, to me it's like it's like okay so it, this is again it's it's another example of this motif of of taking something that has a really complicated history yeah. and lobotomizing it from that history for some sort of subversive effect and that's the only thing i can think of to articulate what's going on there's a whole weird thing going on that equates ghost culture with sort of um yeah almost minstrel racial caricatures I mean, I get the word I'm looking for is sort of Disney tiki culture. You know, that sort of weird world of non-white iconography just sort of stuck up in a room so that people can watch it and, and enjoy it. Um, I'm not even critiquing the scene. I think the scene's got about eight levels of critique in it to, to find, you know, yeah. before you can start critiquing it. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, figures like, you know... Um... Animation has a, a long and problematic history, as, as we know, and, and I, I'm not going to 
recount it all. And when the way you, when you were talking, it was reminding me of you know Cab Calloway in a, in early Fleischer and, and Paramount mm-hmm. cartoons. But yeah, I think you're right that the the sort of quote unquote cover version that we're treated to, where you have these characters performing this particular song, um, this ja- uh, traditional ja- Jamaican uh, folk song. Is isn't isn't it supposed to draw out exactly the characters, uh, and I mean all of the characters' um, treatment of history and historical meaning and uh, authenticity, because it's it's very much framed as a particular kind of a particular kind of performance that they were not expecting and weren't hospitable to, and here we are, they're now around the table, kind of making a mockery of the song, whilst at the same time Burton's using it to draw attention to the superficiality, the artificiality, that kind of rhetorical front, again, um, of uh, characters who are only interested in history because they can hollow it out. Uh, And so, yeah, you're right, there is a lot to to say about that particular sequence, um, of which I don't have any more, but uh, I do think the role of sound anyway and sound effects in the film is, is interesting. But that, that sequence itself, to take a Jamaican folk song and have it performed by high... And, and actually, there's thinking about it, there's a lot of writing. Um, uh, Sean Nagai has written a book called Ugly Feelings that talks about the relationship between black culture and ideas of animatedness um, and hyperactivity, a sort of right. racialized, racialized discourse. And she uses the PJs as a, as a television program with a, a life focused on a, a black family. But I think what's interesting about, uh, yeah, it sort of it, it taps into that that. Um, presumed if we if we like uh thing that the guy's talking about the relationship between black culture and, and animatedness and, and kind of hyperactivity you'd have to do a little bit more frantic googling but um it reminded me it sort of seems to be playing on that on that image in some in some in some way but it is a it is a jarring sequence that's all i that's all i need to say about that <laughs> i think it was it also i think calypso music doesn't it mean um doesn't it sort of mean freedom and sort of Right. Uh, it also signifies symbolically like the ghosts of the past. So may- maybe it's sort of just this. I mean, if we, if we just sort of distill it into sort of just a gratuitous way to signify these things, but also through everything that we've talked about, where it very much is about, you know, kind of reappropriation and, and sort of maybe either paying homage to it or, or paying attention to it or, or disrupting it or again, making a comment on these very white characters. Yeah. But it's really, it, I didn't know that about sort of the use of black music in, in, in cartoons and animation. It's really interesting. I've done, I've done my frantic Googling. So animatedness is Nagai. So this is Sean, uh, Sean Nagai's book, Ugly Feelings, talks about animatedness uh, as a term for politically charged affect of non-mainstream groups who are characterised as overly emotional, overly agitated, uh, and usually oversexed while simultaneously imagined as pliant or lacking in individual agency. Um and so obviously we've got things, you know, um, uh, raw uh, festivals. So the Cinco de Mayo, you've got um, certain kinds of, um, you know, I suppose something like the, Not- the Notting Hill Carnival would fit into these sorts of assumptions around uh, animated, uh, animatedness being a combination of too much effect and too little agency, um, which give rise to, um, you know, protests and moments of, of energy and excessiveness. And so I think that's what she's trying to, to sort of, she's trying to politicize the idea of animatedness um, and, uh, and, and in many ways trying to champion and understand and mobilize concepts around uh, negative emotions, but thinking about them more kind of politically. Um, so at the animatedness, I think in, in that particular sequence is, is yeah, interesting and given, given exactly that kind of, um, 
uh, agitation and because it's essentially it's it's white characters behaving as mm. behaving like animation you know that they're contorted and and, and you can almost imagine um in between the frames Burton moving these characters you know as if they were puppets um but anyway that's all I have to say about that but it did chime with um the guy's work on on animatedness yeah there's definitely a coded racialized yeah um addition to that performance that that you can read in so many ways uh, that I've gone cross-eyed thinking about it but um yeah I thought I thought a lot about it and I still don't know uh, listeners, write a write a sequence analysis a bit for us and, and let us know. That would be good. Um, I've got a couple of things, yeah, a bit on sound, but I just want, yeah. Um, normally, when we we talk about these movies, and I've said this in previous podcasts, um, like bits that you really enjoy or sequences that really kind of stand out for you, or or things in the film that you're like, ah, that's the bit that I remember. Because Be- I mean, we, actually, we haven't really talked about Beetlejuice as a character, mm. weirdly enough. He's <laughs> because he's not in it that much. Um, and so perhaps we could talk a little bit about what what Beetlejuice is supposed to signify, to be, to what's his kind of role in this in this raucous raucous movie. Then perhaps you know favorite bits, and then we'll we'll move towards the conclusion. What is Beetlejuice doing in this film? What does he signify? Well, um, I think again, it's sort of that archetype of the trickster which is sort of this really popular sort of narrative device to kind of get your other characters to do lots of things, right? Really interesting thing. Mm-hmm. But obviously, you know, he's displacement. He's the agent of chaos. He's a little bit misogynist. Well, he's a lot of misogynist. <laughs> um, and he has, you know, the transformations of sort of the, that organic transformation where he can suit any environment and how he sort of is very ephemeral and mm-hmm. he kind of can move between quite freely. I mean, even the end, you know, yes, he's in the waiting room, but we know he's going to get out. You know, it's that idea mm. of, I don't know, it, 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 a lot of things. But I think, you know, you can apply the Faustian, you know, codes to this, you know, the idea of, you know, he, he goes to these two uh, soul, souls and they, they they have to sell their soul if they want to get these people out of their homes. And it ends up being actually the the human girl, Lydia Dietz, who ends up, uh, you know, uh, releasing him, I guess. Mm. Well, does she release him? Wait, maybe I'm... No, that's a scene where he tries to convince her to release him. And she doesn't. Yeah, she doesn't. Yeah, and she also doesn't marry him either. Um, Oh, yeah, that scene. Because you almost think... And then, then like so many wedding ceremonies that I've been to, um, the the ceremony is disrupted by uh, a woman who's riding what can only be described as an absolutely massive saber-toothed snake thing through through the the ceremony and then it end you know that's the um that's the the issue I, I like the idea of him as the obviously the trickster fig animation history of animation is rooted in trickster figures um probably the most famous is is probably felix the cat but yeah i mean the trickster figure him him as a sort of agent of chaos um yeah i kind of quite like that but also he's this sort of he embodies a lot of the you know, I've I've written Beetlejuice, flexible body, plasmaticness, um, and also he's a figure to which um, sort of sa- I think a lot of his movements, and and this goes back to the question of sound. You have a lot of sound effects um, in the film that are used to emphasise his sort of cartoonal quality. Um, there are two routes that sound effects can go down, nicely split between a studio like Warner Brothers and a studio like Disney. Disney, the hyper-realist symphonic, to use Philip Brophy's categories, uh, or Warner Brothers is more cacophonic um, and sounds like, so analogous sound. So uh, this is very much, uh, of the two, it's Warner brothers E. you know, it uses sound effects to um, duplicate in sound what the film does visually in in terms of its, its, its uh, animation, really. Um, 
Alex, any bits on fantasy that we've missed, or you've got your you've got your virtual hand up? I've got I've got to say because this is my role in the podcast. It's also a you know the trickster thing is it's a thing that's you know writ large in the history of, of folklore. You know from Anasi the spider in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so back to a sort of African American connection again, mm. because that tr- went to the Caribbean. Brer Rabbit in the sort of the tradition of slavery in North America. Uh, Renard the Fox in Europe. This is all sort of writ large in that. So I've got to point that out because that's what I do on this podcast. I you say something about animation and I say something about fancy. Let's fancy. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> um, and then I've got another thing. This is another. Uh, we could talk about this for half an hour, but we won't. P- Women being asked to marry weird demon creatures in the final act of 80s movies is a is a massive thing. And again, there's a paper I'd like to commission um, someone to write on, on that because there's like, you know, from films like Legend where, um, oh, I've forgotten the actress's name. Um, Tim, oh, Tim Curry and uh, what's yeah, her Yeah, she has to marry a big old yes. um, demon man. Um, there's a really naff but wonderful uh, 60s fantasy movie called Jack the Giant Killer where the same thing has to happen. In fact, there's loads of them. I could go mm. through them all. Um, right up to the recent Aladdin, they, they really? did that again, actually, where randomly, out of nowhere, the main her- heroine has to marry the demonic um, evil person in, in a climactic battle. So I don't know what that's all about, but it's there. Um, and then final thing, because again, I've got to play up to type. There's a Wizard of Oz reference in the film um, about 15 minutes in, I think. Um, they say there's no place like home. Um, and it's interesting because the emphasis when they say it is very much on the no, which is a reading that a lot of people have explored with the original Wizard of Oz movie. Um, but actually the film's about that there is no place like home, not that there's no place like home. Um, that has been me for another episode. I've done all my bits. Yeah, there's also the, another reference to it, though, because he says, um, a house fell on your sister. Oh, great. Right. Two of them. <laughs> there's two. <laughs> okay. But, okay. Even better. Oh, I just wanted, yeah. I just wanted to point out also they eat Chinese takeaway as their first meal when they move into the house. Okay. Um, I don't know what that is, but it's sort of a kind of, you know, in, in 80s films, there's always the scene where they're kind of eating Chinese takeaway. Mm. And as a half Chinese person, I don't know, there's something this very strange sort of, I don't know if it's just gratuitous, but there is a kind of uh, obsession with that kind of idea. Or I know it's fast takeaway, but it's not pizza. So there's this kind of exoticism attached to that. So I guess it kind of ties in with the idea that these pizzas are very much cosmopolitans. They aren't, you know, your normal, you know, middle class Americans. They are very much upper middle class, you know, metropolitans, right? I mean, I think there's a huge distinction there, even with their clothing and their, they're quite intelligent, they're articulate, they're successful. Um, so yeah, just wanted to note that. Coincidentally, I'm watching loads of West Wing um, at the moment, and they're always eating Chinese takeaway and that, and I don't understand what's going on there. But I think it's, it's you're right, it's some sort of weird North American shorthand for someone that's cosmopolitan, but but yeah. not time rich. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, oh, I'm um, cultured, right. I eat Chinese takeaway. It's like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I haven't got any time because I've had to eat takeout, you know. Um, interesting, mm. yes. All right, add that to the list. Uh, well... If we're, if we're making lists about, because okay, this, this goes back to this question of whether Tim Burton is really an outsider or not, and actually a lot of the the things that I think Jing and you said this, but he's kind of a product of the eighties, and that, and and so to tie into that, as I was watching the film, I was thinking about eighties movies where I mean, I put a little note about Mary Poppins and the treatment of the home. You know, the the home is 
ostensibly normal and then weird things happen because of a certain kind of intrusion but um it re- i mean it reminded me so much of the, no- the 1986 american comedy film the money pit with tom hanks and shelley long where they buy a house and try and do it up and it just like falls to bits um and so it, there's a genre of and i might have made this genre up but what is genre studies is if not looking back over some things and making connections hell i wrote a book about american animation and genre so let's let's do that um so I just pick up the plug that I've just dropped on the floor. Um, so, yeah, f- films about like, I don't know, domesticity or the chaos of domestic space. Um, but certainly, yeah. So The Money Pit is 1986, so only a couple of years before Beetlejuice. Um, it was, the film itself is a remake of a film, a 1948 film with Cary Grant. But um, there's something around families trying to establish okay here's a here's a house we're going to do it up we're trying to secure and establish mm-hmm. the foundations for, and then stuff gets disrupted um and so this seemed to be i'd be interested to know whether one that is a genre of the 1980s that i've just made up or whether it actually existed and two this film seems like a, a kind of tim burton treatment of that kind of movie whereas it's not it's it's done it, or it, it's it's given the sort of you know uh, supernatural quality mm-hmm. that we have a um, I don't know. There's something around films like you know films like Hocus Pocus and all these sorts of things, which is early nineties. Um, I don't know. I just I just find I just found a sort of parallel. I think in in uh, maybe maybe they're all filmed in the same house and it just looks the same. Um, these sorts of yeah mid- middle America white houses with white painted wooden slats across them, um, shutters that kind of thing. But um, anyway, it's an hour. We're we're we're, we're over an hour in, and I've I've. Um, I'm cl- so close to saying Beetlejuice three times. Yeah, exactly. I-, I think if this episode had been an ice cream flavour, it'd be half baked. Uh, but lots of fun uh, potential ideas out there for people to to explore. But yeah, absolutely. I think a rich movie. Um, are we are we all done on Beetlejuice before before um, we wrap this up for another week? Well, I just yeah yeah I think so. I mean, I think also like we we could go into sort of the theatrics of it. I was I was telling Chris um, this morning that you know I was googling uh, YouTube videos of the Broadway musical adaptation of Beetlejuice, of course, which opened last year, and and just the set, the mammoth set of that, and how you know it's become this resurged as a sort of cult thing again, and and that idea of uh, theatrics is mm. something and vaudevillian yeah. uh, stylings as well. Like we're we're going back into that kind of wanting to make things, wanting to make tangible things. I mean, even like, what's that, um, the remake of, um, you know, that, um, God, in my head, you know, the Henson films with um, the, the Jim Henson thing, it was in a, t- it's a TV Crystal? show. Yeah, Star Crystal. It's, doesn't that use sort of half CGI, half puppetry again? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Mainly puppetry, I think, although that could be a yeah. marketing thing, but certainly a mix of both. But I really love that. I really love tangible animation. So that's all I wanted to say. I hope it does come back because I love I love stop motion and I love I don't know there's something textural about it. I love it. I agree. I think the um the thing that I'm taking away from this film I I, I much enjoyed the practical effects. Um, the dinner party you have a kind of stop motion snake, the sandworms, all these sorts of things. Uh, much more than the intermittent and there's not much of the the um, uh, blue screen. But I I sort of much enjoyed the practical effects. Uh, I don't think it's just a nostalgia thing. I think it, it's, it's that sort of Little Shop of Horrors style, rubbery, prosthetic. I, I really like that. Yeah, that sort of tangible material um, element to, to visual effects that many commentators on digital technology are sort of uh, celebrating new technologies for, but also fearful that we're losing exactly that kind of um, hands-on, hands-in 
uh, staccato jerky movement that that is manifesting on screen the labor that what was put what um that was put into it sort mm. of thing so no it's 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 a, a film certainly and it's a, i think it's a surprise that it has been i wouldn't say erased but certainly doesn't it's it's not often one that gets gets held up as a as a, a moment in vfx history perhaps because it's because it's a burton film and therefore it's it's a burton film before it's anything else it's it's fantasy before it's animation there you go as indeed it always should be um uh, Jingan, where can listeners find you if they so wish to and read more about your academic work or screenwriting um, plays? Um, you're, you're quite a Renaissance woman. Please let people know where they can find you. Oh, thank you very much. Um, well, a couple of recordings of my plays can be found on my website, uh, jinganyoung.co.uk. And there's a new one up. So that's something to plug, I suppose. Uh, and also uh, Twitter at jinganyoung. And my research about London Soho is at Soho on screen. So please tweet me. B film recommendations to watch in lockdown. Terrific. Uh, please do, because um, all very um, useful um, social media profiles and, and links to lots of great stuff. Uh, we What do we need to plug? Um, apparently, we, books, apparently. Chris has a book. Yay. You can buy it. I don't know if you mentioned that. Uh, the computer animated film, it's not very good. A better book is Fantasy Animation, Connections Between Media, Medium and Genres, which is out in paperback, which you can now buy. Um, still quite pricey. It'll be around the sort of 30 to 35 pound mark but if you have um library purchasing credentials at university if you're an academic or if you just feel like splashing the cash do buy it otherwise you can find us on the fantasy animation website fantasy-animation.org uh you can read our latest blog posts um, listen to previous podcasts we have episodes on charlie and the chocolate factory and the corpse ride that you can access in the archive if you want more things burton don't forget, next uh, time on the podcast, we will be talking about a film of your choice um, around the broad theme of diversity and inclusion. Uh, Chris and I would love to read as many suggestions out on that episode as possible. So please, could you send us either um, a quick email on the submissions platform on the website or tweet us or Facebook or Instagram or Reddit. I'll give those details in just a second. Um, tell us a film we should watch and why. We'd love to get as many people involved in the conversation and read it out on the next episode, regardless as to which we pick. So let us know. <gasps> he takes a breath. Um, fantasy, you can find us at Fantasy Animation Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research on all those platforms. That's Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and Instagram. Chris, we're done for another week. We are. Um, thank you, uh, Jingan, for, for joining us. As I said, um, in addition to everything else, do check her out on Twitter. She's also written a piece for um, a blog post for Fancy Animation as well. So, um, yeah, have a, have a little search, read her stuff, um, follow her on Twitter. And, um, yeah, thank you very much for, for joining us on this episode of the podcast to talk about um, Beetlejuice. Um, as I said, I find it really interesting that that this was, you know, I, knowing you and knowing your research and the kinds of stuff that you write, both um, academic work and, and uh, as, a, as a playwright, it was nice to sort of do a, do a sort of 180 a little bit and think about something like Beetlejuice. So thank you um, very much for, for doing that. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, <laughs> All right, we'll see you next time on the episode. Um, keep the suggestions coming in and take care in the meantime. Bye. Bye. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake your body liner. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake it all the time. Work, 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 Sinora, work your body liner. Work, 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 Sinora, work it all the time. My girl's name is Sonora. I tell you.